0: The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take a personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you.
1: Good morning, everybody. My name is John Addis. I'm founder and editor of Intelligent Investor. And this morning I have with me here, Graham Witkin from sunny Canada. How are you doing, Graham? Hey, John. Graham's mum is making complaints about my monitor. apparently shaking when I talk. So hopefully Graham's mum will be... Actually, it did. I see what she's saying. It's me banging the table. Okay. (laughs) I'll try and sit further back to appease Graham's mum. And also we have Nick here. How are you doing this morning, Nick? Good, thanks, John. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We have three topics this morning. Uh, One which is a a timely kind of market-based conversation over the US tech rally, which will lead us nicely into charismatic CEOs and the um, attractions and dangers of following them. Uh, And then we're going to have a discussion about the benefits of talking to management or otherwise. So let's kick off with the the rally in us stocks, Nick. It's been pretty significant for the first time, I think in intelligent investors history, we we timed the launch of something reasonably well, uh, When we launched uh, the Intelligent Investor Select Value Fund in March, uh, we weren't expecting the kind of rally that we've seen since then. It's actually been going for about six months or so. How significant is this, do you think, Nick? Well, it is pretty
0: significant in the context of interest rates were up 5%. The S&P 500 was down 20-odd percent last year, and now we're in a new bull market. Um, and most of the gains have gone to a handful of stocks. So up until the thirtieth of June this year, the S and P 500 was up seventeen percent. But seventy percent of those gains have come from just seven stocks that they've now named as they do the Magnificent Seven. And those are those are Nvidia, Tesla, uh, Alphabet, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. And so the the rally has been extremely concentrated. So, yeah, if you haven't owned these seven stocks and you're a US fund manager, you've um, underperformed. And you're seeing a lot of reports, I've read a lot of reports, I should say, um, recently. And a lot of fund managers are underperforming because they were underweight these names. Uh, And and they've now just, uh, they're almost like our big four banks in terms of the concentration of the index. And it's only been going one way. The poster child's NVIDIA, which is up fourfold since October, it's now a $1.2 trillion company. And there's a few stats here that are just unbelievable. So it's the it trades on around 200 times earnings. It's the most expensive um, stock within the S&P 500. And I went back and looked at its um, free cash flow history for the last 27 years, so all the way back to 1995, and it actually trades at 30 times the entire free cash flow that's ever mattered, currently, hmm. which is and to put that in context, a company like Microsoft, which is also a two and a half trillion dollar valuation, trades on around four times the entire free cash flow that's ever mattered. Um, so it's it's kind of unbelievable um, what we're seeing, um, yeah, over there at the moment.
1: Is how much is, does this have to do with the? I mean, Nvidia is obviously part of the artificial intelligence boom. Um, mm. Which we've we've written about in the past, but what about the other stocks? Are they all deemed to be AI beneficiaries as well?
0: Well, I mean, yes and no. Uh, if you look at a company like Apple, which is trading at all-time highs, mm. its earnings are going to go down this year, or predicted to go down. In the last quarter, they are an instinct fall by around, I think, about eight percent on an earnings per share level. It hasn't really talked been talked about whether it will be a beneficiary or um, uh, potentially um, you know, disrupted by artificial intelligence, but still enjoying the rally. A company like Microsoft obviously um, has been in the press around OpenAI and ChatGBT, and more recently I think we talked about last time with their co-pilot and Office 365. So they seem to be a beneficiary. And then I guess the jury is still out on um, Amazon and, and Alphabet, but Nvidia sticks out as the clear one because they're sort of the arms supplier. wall. Their chips are you know, powering all these companies, so they're the arms supply to this, to this war.
1: Mm-hmm. Graham, what what are your thoughts? You're, you're also in North America. Does uh, this look kind of odd to you
2: too? Well, just hearing Nick then, it, it reminded me that we're in an interesting time because the largest stocks uh, account for so much more of the index than they used to, the index following the index doesn't mean as much. Like, What does it actually mean if the S&P is down um, a few percent or something, if all of that is coming from just the movement of a few stocks? So the first thing that jumped out to me is kind of the irrelevance these days of watching the indexes because you're really just following a few stocks, what they're doing. Uh, you need to dig kind of much deeper to figure out what the, the general market or economy is doing. That's right. I
1: mean, if if you have a portfolio that you benchmark against, you know, the ASX 200, uh, which is a typical benchmark that people use or the the, uh, accumulation index, and you don't actually account for the fact that banks and resources account for probably half of that, more than half, probably, of that index. It's really kind of misleading, but I never expected to see the U.S., which is a broadly diversified economy, going the, going the same way as the direction that we've been going over the last twenty or thirty years. In a highly concentrated. It's interesting. Event.
2: They've kind of done a different uh, route. We've got we've got a very high concentration of specific industries, and they've got a high concentration of specific stocks, which are all kind of tech related. But you wouldn't. They aren't necessarily. Uh, to move in the same trajectories like all iron ore will probably kind of uh move in sync whereas google and say apple could be going in totally different directions over 20 years so uh yeah it is a more diversified economy and i'd much rather own the s p 500 than the asx 200 uh but in terms of from from a diversification standpoint but Yeah. I think
0: that's a yeah, like a good point. If you just look at our big four banks, they're really only Australian businesses. Even though these companies are listed in America, they're global businesses. They're yeah, over fifty percent of most of their earnings come offshore. So it's not just they're just American companies either, unlike our you know big four banks. Yeah,
1: Nick. Do you, is yeah, there any evidence you up to that? Sorry, go ahead, John. Is there any evidence, Nick, that the this or? this boom in ai related or technology stocks is is over here in australia as well can you see it spreading to other sectors in the us or is it does it look to you as though it's just concentrated in these in these seven or eight in these magnificent 7
0: i think so far the returns have been largely concentrated there but we are seeing more and more companies talk about artificial intelligence mm. so a company uh, we own in the Intelligent Investor Select Value Fund, um, Universal Music. Um, they're seen as a massive, math- artificial intelligence is seen as a massive threat to that business because, uh, you know, you and I could possibly create a song with a few uh, prompts of a keyboard um, and, you know, how, how will that work on streaming services if we start uploading content and maybe their revenue share falls or uh, the user experience um, is hurt. So, it, and so uh, they're talking about it a lot in their earnings call, um, and I've seen a lot of companies in Australia. Um, I would say, more questionable business models, um, matching it more and more in presentations. Um, you know, similar to. Other booms, like when we saw cryptocurrency, some of these fintech players would start mentioning it and see if their stock price went up. And So it is spreading, but for now, I think the big returns have been seen mainly in these um, handful of stocks.
1: And we have downgraded a number of these stocks in the IISV portfolio too Mm -hmm. uh, in recent months as well, haven't we? okay, let's let's move on to the um the attractions and dangers of the charismatic CEO then because it's kind of a nice segue. You mentioned the uh, the Nvidia CEO. He's a genuinely interesting kind of character. What is it that you think attracts people to a kind of CEO who's been plugging away for twenty five years, but he's got a very distinctive way of, talking about his own business, should we say? Yeah. (laughs) He's very enthusiastic and you can get carried away in it. What's your view on the CEO at NVIDIA as a way of beginning this conversation, Nick?
0: Well, I think he's the attraction element so far, but and you never know how quickly that can turn into the danger element. I mean, this is a guy who um, rocks up to... Yeah, events where everyone's in a suit and he's just in his leather jacket. I don't think I've ever seen him without a leather jacket Malcolm Turnbull.
1: All. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, he's got a massive car collection. He's an absolute car nut. Uh, I think there was a story that he had a crash um, uh, many decades ago in his Supra, um, like just, just a very uh, eclectic and energetic individual um, He's also bet the company probably two or three times, um, and those bets, you know, as you can look at the stock price recently, um, have paid off. Uh, so I guess that's the probably the prime example of the attraction of charismatic CEO people just get behind them and they uh, really back their vision. But as I said, it can um, quickly turn into I guess a pitfall if it um, if something goes wrong.
2: And you get different CEOs for different times where. If he's been a fairly consistent character for twenty years, but he's only just taking the spotlight now, it could just because it could just be because the the general kind of environment and the mood in the newspapers or whatever has suddenly synced up with how his kind of personality is, that maybe that same kind of character uh, wouldn't work during a recession or wouldn't work during uh, some other type of tech boom
1: or something or other that. I think that's a good point. You you do need different CEOs for different kinds of circumstances and different Mm. market conditions. And you could look at, uh, I would never call Bill Gates charismatic, but he had a drive and an insistence that got Microsoft started and developed it into this global behemoth. And then he was replaced by Steve Ballmer, and everybody's seen that developers, developers, developers video where he 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 got this the the the, the most sweat I've ever seen on any man, even compared to (laughs) sports stars. Absolutely astonishing thing to watch. And that wasn't the right kind of CEO for where Microsoft was at the time. And it took somebody like Satya Nadella, who's probably much more conservative very calm, well-balanced, he's got a soothing kind of voice, to come into that business and fundamentally reorientate it in a way that Steve Ballmer wasn't even able to see, let alone do. So you can see Steve Ballmer being there at the beginning of Microsoft and helping it get started. But once once it went off the rails strategically, he was just completely the wrong person. And it was a kind of act of brilliance to pick, pick Nadella out from the the number of long timers mm-hmm. that they had in, in in Microsoft to be there at the right time. So I think this is one of the dangers that we fall into as investors that the charismatic CEO appeals to our narrative bias. You know that it's kind of the the great man of history story that we often all fall for when businesses are kind of collective efforts, and the tendency is to see it through one person, one person's story. That's a very seductive thing for the human brain, but it's, from an investing point of view, it's a risk. And before we were talking, before we started the podcast, Graham, you mentioned Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Holmes uh, as the CEO of, what was the name of the company again? Completely- Theranos. Theranos. You can see the charisma in someone like that and her ability to raise money to get what essentially was a fraud off the ground. That played out very strongly in that situation.
2: Yeah, definitely. You And that's the danger of uh, these charismatic CEOs is that charisma often follows overconfidence. And when you get CEOs that are just like blindingly confident, at least in their presentation skills, uh, whether or not they believe in what they're actually selling, uh, yeah, that can be very alluring. And... Yeah, I think she is a good example because she, I mean, not many people would have seen it coming because she just came off with all of those qualities that you love to see. She was kind of calm and intelligent and I don't know what it was about her that gave her the charisma, but a lot of it was the the confidence, I think, and also the unusual story. You want to believe, oh, this woman like left school at 18 started this company became a billionaire and saved the world in the meantime Mm -hmm. uh yeah that that narrative sucks you in that people want to believe
1: Uh, in these CEOs I (laughs) think in, in terms of the warning signs Elizabeth Holmes is spectacularly good and I I don't want to it's it's unfortunate that that we we're talking about a woman here because I think women get probably more much more stick than men and and more harshly treated when we're talking about this sort of thing but she actively modeled herself on steve jobs so she she i've read the the biography of her by the wall street journalist i can't remember his name now john carrieu she modeled herself on steve jobs so she deliberately started to slow down how she spoke Uh, she lowered the tone of her voice she would go everywhere in turtleneck jumpers just And and without saying that she was modeling herself on Steve Jobs, everybody, like your brain is just registering these similarities. Mm -hmm. So you think, well, this is going to be the next Apple. I think that's what your subconscious is doing. And of course, it didn't quite work out like that. (laughs) But all the bells were ringing there. And I think this raises an interesting point about charismatic CEOs who are probably needed to get something off the ground. You need somebody who's got some charisma, can tell a story. The WeWork CEO is a great example of that, uh, Adam Newman. A very imposing character, very charismatic speaker, can really rally the troops and rally the money even better. And that you do need that to get off the ground, but it's very hard. There's a very thin line between that and then going into a situation where you just have this belief, which isn't really reasoned. It's not grounded in any kind of facts. Yeah. Nick, do you have any personal experience of falling for charismatic CEO?
0: Maybe not falling for them, but uh, one that springs to mind is definitely uh, Hamish Douglas. Um, you know, as we all know in the investment management industry, you be a great investor, but can still not raise any money. And he was probably one of the best I've ever seen. Um, at presenting and raising capital. He's very charismatic. Advisors just want to give him and allocate more capital um, to the Magellan um, group of funds. And I've sort of never seen another CIO like it, I guess. They always come across as very almost like accountant figures, very careful of what they say, and this guy do a couple of podcasts and 15 roadshows, you know, in a month. Yeah. Um, all while um, you know, keeping up to date with with everything. But just just how quickly that can unfold like it did with Magellan, as soon as, you know, if he's the main person bringing in capital, it can soon go straight out the door. Um, yeah. and that's what it's and that's what sort of happened. I guess you've got to be careful with charismatic CEOs for a few reasons. One, you never want them in. <laughs> Certain industries, like you don't want someone even like Steve Jobs, you know, making auto loans. You know, like it's it's just <laughs> it's just it's just the wrong character for the for the um wrong industry. And then this, the last point is um, going back to you know uh, Hamish Douglas is just how quickly it can unravel when it yeah. does go wrong.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: It also becomes a risk, I think, with those kind of CEOs that. Uh, their natural charisma will will put them in positions of power and they can kind of accidentally trick the employees that they will always know better, whether or not they do. But then that means that kind of truth isn't spoken to power. So they're not going to get the feedback that they might have got early on or that other companies, CEOs would get because people start blindly believing, well, geez, Elon Musk must know better than I do about XYZ. And so therefore, we'll just defer to his judgment. Uh, yeah, I think it these charismatic CEOs, I mean, there are some brilliant ones out there, but they can break down the systems in a company that allow for, I don't know, a safer operation that yeah, diversifies
1: decision-making and thought processes and all of that. That's right. I think the business is essentially a collective effort. Um, a, a charismatic CEO is great for getting something off the ground, but especially in investment management, you, the idea that one person is responsible for every great decision is an alarming situation for a business to be in i find mm. and magellan is yeah. just a great mm. example of that but in even if you're making widgets if you're doing something like apple is doing the idea that one person is the the, the font of all knowledge and is it is a dangerous dangerous thing and i think there's a few there's a few points here that i'd like to mention that investors should Think about when they're looking at these kinds of companies. And I do remember. Uh, you remember the retractable syringe bubble? Somebody should do. Mm. It <laughs> Somebody, should yeah. Do it. Uh, what was that company called? uh I forget the name I'm of the company, but I, rem- I remember going to the the, the AGM.
2: Yeah, I was C- there with you. I think.
1: Yeah. And the CEO. It was just amazing how many times he used the word "I." And I uh, went. I went through see, the transcript. I- yeah, go on. I was just going to say the, the, the phrase that I remember him
2: making over and over was, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, nobody says that that often and isn't making it up.
1: <laughs> that, yeah. He used to so, love saying, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> so that, that the promotional CEO is, is, is going to say that kind of stuff. The egotistical, charismatic CEO is probably going to use the word I rather than we a, 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 a lot more. Uh, so I, I went and did a count of the transcript, and I think he used the word I like 40 or 50 times. Uh, we also checked his Instagram. I think it was that one, but I would normally go and look on their Instagram and just see what car they drive. I remember hmm. when, um, when 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 I first interviewed Greg Hoffman, uh, we, 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 we had an interview in the pub, obviously, and um, he was very, very keen to see what car I drove. <laughs> and he was extremely reassured when he saw it was a honda civic secondhand At that (laughs) i I might add and i think this ceo the retractable syringe company was driving a bentley and Mm. you can obviously look at pay you know how much are they paying themselves this is a company that really had no product or any money but he was driving, driving around in a bentley uh if they're you know taking pictures of themselves on private jets i think that's always a bit of a warning sign yeah. one so always... I love is
2: when when you read through, you can only really tell when the company's doing poorly, but they'll always blame environmental factors. I love seeing CEOs that say, we made this decision wrong, we didn't judge XYZ, we did whatever, but they're kind of looking inwards. Whereas these, the ones that get in trouble, they're always saying, oh yeah, the market moved against us, as if it needed to move for yeah. them, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're,
0: you're seeing a lot of that in uh like commercial property and other sectors at the moment, saying, "Oh, interest rates went up. It's not our fault." You know, yeah, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. I, I love be- the there's you actually see it pop up all the time in our industry where they'll say the the format of the phrase will be, "Ah, uh, uh, earnings missed guidance," as if the bullseye was the guidance that. Like it wasn't us trying to forecast correctly. It was them who had to meet our forecast. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I think um, if you've got an egotistical CEO or an egotistical management, that is inevitably what's going to happen. Uh, They will always blame external factors, won't take responsibility for them because their ego won't allow it. So, Charisma is one thing. Ego, I think, is another. I mean, you, you might argue that ego is a subset of charisma, but some people are unegotistical but do have just to have a kind of natural charisma. Uh, but a, a charismatic CEO, which means, you know, in, say, Hamish, Hamish's case, he had great presentation skills, very smart person, but also an ego to match it. That's kind of a dangerous combination for a business, and and, and, and I would try and steer clear of those people. But in general... I think investors should really ask the question whether you would rather be in a business with a charismatic CEO or somebody who is just calm, competent, and isn't really doing it for the attention that they get from it, or have this idea of them being, the business being an extension of themselves. Because I think our narrative bias pushes us towards a charismatic CEO, but generally, the better businesses are run by people who have that sense of collective enterprise and they don't build the business around them. They actively mitigate against that and, and make themselves replaceable and build a culture rather than a cult of personality. Yeah, totally agree.
2: Especially if there's the business is having to go through a turnaround. I think the last thing you want is for some white knight ceo to be appointed that everyone then thinks is going to save the company i'd much rather see the company just quietly getting better quarter after quarter or whatever without much news about it without much uh ceo attention where you just know that in the background things are getting done Mm -hmm. rather than it's just
1: being all for show so let's let's talk then about um the benefits of meeting with and talking to managers because often you see these things in when you meet with management in a way that you don't when they're in the public domain graham what are your views on on the benefits and traps of meeting with management in terms of informing your research and fleshing out your your investment sort of hypothesis about a business
2: Yeah, I'm not a big fan of meeting management, mainly because I'm aware of my own bias that when I meet someone, I tend to, well, especially if I have to meet them multiple times, then you're going to like them more and more in general, or you start, I don't know, hearing about their wife and kids or whatever, what car they drive. And there's suddenly a person behind the company rather than you just analyzing objectively the company in a very impartial way. Once you start interacting with the CEO more, it becomes not just a company, but it's like, oh, this person who has feelings, who is trying their best, and you can you can kind of become a bit more maybe forgiving uh, that as things are starting to deteriorate, you'll be like, oh well, I'll just give them the benefit of the doubt, or I'll yeah, I'm I'm sure they're doing their best in the background or whatever. Uh, I think not having that relationship works better for me and uh also i'm a little bit wary of ceos who do want to meet and chat with analysts or people in the investment community or shareholders that i don't want a ceo to spend 60 percent of their time willing to talk uh that they should be focused on the business and doing what's best in the background uh not just trying to appease the shareholders and the investors so I actually respect the CEOs who turn down phone calls. (laughs) Maybe I just like rejection. (laughs) But the I like (laughs) the ones who who say, no, sorry, not enough time, or it takes five weeks to schedule something with them or whatever, because you know that they're doing their job. They're there trying to like work at the company instead of just chattel data analysts. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's something to be said for the CEOs who don't want to talk, who don't do presentations, who aren't there out in doing every interview possible uh i find that they tend to be the better ceos really i'm more wary of the ones who are just constantly on roadshows who are just big marketing arms basically nick what's your
1: view
0: yeah i I think for me it depends and it mainly depends on the size of the company for large companies there's a ton of information out there you usually don't have Access to the, the top management teams. Um, and you can pretty, I think you can make a um, fairly informed investment decision without meeting with management. But as you, as the market cap sort of gets smaller, there's just there's just not as much information. So if you look at like an ASX company, maybe with a three or four hundred million dollar market cap, they might have 60 or 70, uh, 60 or 70-page annual report. And, and that's sort of all they release each year. They might release, you know, they release a half year and maybe a presentation with it. And it's sometimes really hard to get an idea of what's going on in that industry and in that business. And I think that's where um, a call with management um, can really help, particularly if you have a specific question. Uh, you've got to be careful, obviously, as Graham was saying. You never want to be friends with a um, with management team um, you know, that's just a quick way to financial ruin. You'll make some really stupid mistakes, um, and you'll also probably make excuses for them. As to say, oh, they're a good guy, and you know, um, it'll it'll get better. But yeah, for, for specific questions and for smaller companies, I do find it sometimes beneficial with uh, meeting with management or even going on um, a site visit or something like that. With site visits, what's interesting is you actually get to see how they interact with um, staff, which I think is mm-hmm. a really, um, particularly for in certain industries, is a is a really good indicator in terms of the type of manager they are.
1: Yeah, I think if you're even if you're an AGM, seeing the CEO talk over the CFO, for example, that's a really really mm. good indicator of the kind of culture that they've got. We did have an example with um, Raymond. So I I worked with Raymond on Supply Network. And there was something about that business that I just didn't really understand. I couldn't understand how their margins were so good when their network was so much smaller than competitors. And I felt as though we were missing something. So I I suggested to, to Raymond, he goes out and talk to management, see what he can find out. Or just go and look at the operation. Uh, which he did a couple of days later. And it was quite revealing because the CEO did get back to him quite quickly. But he said, Oh, look, if you were looking for a part, I would have got back to you within about 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was kind of revealing. So the act of approaching management can be useful. I do remember a situation that Gaurav had last year where we were looking at Dubba, uh, which was a, a very speculative, or still is very speculative growth business and there was something odd about the numbers that we wanted management to clarify i won't won't say what it is but there was something odd about them and and i think i've got in touch with them two or three times investor relations people never got back to him so there's something revealing about that that could be because they're really busy and they're running the business and and they're not interested or it could be something else in retrospect given what's happened at that business you go okay it was probably a bad thing you don't know that at the time but just the act of getting in touch can be useful especially among those smaller businesses i feel there are some things that you can learn the bigger businesses they're also media trained they're also aware of the the uh you know they're not going to say anything to you privately well they shouldn't that they that they have not said publicly i don't feel as though there's any benefit at all from talking to uh, uh senior people in a, a very large business unless it's something maybe about their background how the business started how they got involved what their history was that kind of thing that might inform something useful about the business but if you're talking about you know the latest results or something it's kind of pointless when you listen to the earning calls you get that feeling don't you like I'm just yeah. amazed how banal the questions are and how banal the responses are too. It's it's very formulaic and very, very uninformed. But in smaller businesses, I feel as though it can be useful.
2: And I think for those really large businesses, the CEO is inevitably detached from the everyday operations because there's mm. 20 managers between them and the guy coding or whatever. So they probably don't have a complete view of the business anyway, yeah. certainly the board. Yeah, uh, that's right that, yeah, I'd rather speak to a middle manager at Microsoft or something and feel how is the culture, what are they, yeah, what are the kind of issues they come up with, you're probably going to find some interesting stories there that you wouldn't get from a CEO who can only say what has been published, basically. That's right. That's right.
1: There was one, one CEO that we spoke with once where there was something, I mean, it was a long time ago, it was a Bramble CEO. I won't mention his name, um, but... <laughs> It's quite easy to work out, but there was a fuss. Brambles had lost a load of pallets. And um, the CEO got up at the AGM and said, we have they're not lost, we just don't know where they are. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so they're
1: somewhere, but we just don't know where. Which, you know, is a semantic difference, but they're, they're kind mm-hmm. of lost within the Brambles network rather than lost in Antarctica or something. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, one of us approached him and said, so where are the pallets then? And he goes, well, they're <laughs> effing lost, aren't they? You know that? <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And that was a good
1: example where you go, okay, so he's one of those people who is not willing to just say what's really going on and has a tendency to sort of gild the lily. It'd be much better to just come out and say, look, they're lost. Yeah. And we hope to find them, but if we don't, it's going to cost us a fair bit of money. Uh, it's a much more honest work, but they weren't prepared to do that. So there is yeah. a kind of, you show that the PR and the, the party line is a very, very important thing in that business. Uh, anyway. Yeah. One, I
2: remember one, uh, I can't quite remember what company it was, but I remember during the AGM, they would, they were talking about their negative profits <laughs> instead of just really? losses. <laughs> everything was a negative profit. And I was just like, uh, where do you come up with these terms? Some marketing person must have told them to use it instead.
1: It was more positive. <laughs> but I mean, if they're listening to that, that's a that's an incredible worry. You know, it's kind of worse if yeah. somebody's told them to do it and then push back against it and come up with themselves. The yeah, yeah, other flat I, reply, like I find
0: is is um uh, just when you are listening to earnings calls, and it's the analysts that congratulate management on everything they do. It's just oh, so intoxicating.
1: Well, mm. Why would they do that?
0: Oh, I don't know because I, th- well, I think their job as an analyst is to have access to management so the way you have access to management is just becoming you know better and better friends with them and um, you yeah, know I guess it's part of the job but yeah, it's just so off
1: Yeah you can uh, members can rest assured that we have no interest in being friends with management and updating our <laughs> spreadsheets every three months uh, from the calls we have with them. Okay well I think we'll we'll draw a line under that but Yeah, management behavior is something that is kind of a fascinating area of investing life. And often it's the little things that make the difference, I feel, that give you a little indication into how a company functions in its culture. So it's worth paying attention to. Uh, We'll just do, before we close off, let's just go around the group and talk about some research that, uh, you might have read, or an interesting story that you think might be of interest, uh, might be of interest to our to our members. Graham, let's kick off with you. What have What have you seen that's piqued your interest lately?
2: Ah, uh, this is going back a month, but there was an article uh, published a little while ago uh, called "Why AI Will Save the World" by Mark uh, I read that. And Anderson. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah that that article has just stayed in my mind for the past month because it showed it's a lot of the media attention of ai at the moment has been on the negative impacts how it's going to cause job losses how it's going to turn everyone into terminators or something or other Uh, but this showed it kind of laid out the plan of how ai can benefit the world and really cause productivity to take off why it won't lead to massive job losses and uh it just pitched the positive side of the story and maybe the the reality is going to be a, somewhere between the two. But, yeah, it was a nice reminder of when a new technology comes along, it can be scary, but it's not necessarily going to play out how you read in the media. There's, yeah, other ways that things can go. So, yeah, it was a nice article for those who
1: want to see uh, the other side of the story. Yeah, that, that is an interesting article. He's definitely pushing his own boat in that. But yeah. um, I did listen to a few podcasts where he was interrogated on it. He's a very, very convincing speaker. Uh, and he, he makes a powerful argument. I'm not saying it's correct, but I think it's important to get both sides of the story. And the media inevitably takes the negative side. It's just more. Yeah, that's why I liked it, is that traction. it's
2: it was just different to everything else you read. Right. Uh, he was pitching his own. Yeah, I mean, he's got an incentive to believe that. But I think a lot of what he said seemed pretty accurate, particularly the job losses thing, where that had yeah. made me nervous that, uh, yeah, if AI can do everything better than a human, then what ends up happening? But he, he laid out a very convincing argument for why it would uh, just cause a shift in demand and the jobs would follow that demand, basically.
1: Nick, how about you? Yeah, mine's a completely different um...
0: Uh, a podcast I listened to recently, it was on FC Bayern Munich and I'm a football fanatic and it goes, it's uh, called Business Breakdowns and it dives deep into the club's history and their financial um, background and it's just it's just fabulous. It's a real um, eye-opener into the world of European football and how different this, um, you know, member-owned club is um, is compared to the big money you see in um, English football. So there, there's a fair bit of investment sort of background in it. Um, mm-hmm. But if you if you love football, I um, suggest start uh, checking it out.
1: Well, we all love football, and I'm really, really enjoying the um, Women's World Cup. I'm going to strongly recommend it. It's fantastic to see this tournament in Australia. Um, one of the great things about this country is that you can have a tournament like that, and there'll be supporters there from every single country. Like Colombia has just had amazing support when it wherever it's played in Adelaide last night, when they were playing the palms, China was playing the palms. It was it was incredible presence of um, of uh, Chinese supporters. It's just been a brilliant, brilliant tournament. I'm definitely going to watch that that Bayern Munich documentary, especially as it looks as though Harry Kane's going to be going there. I will recommend, um, as we are talking about Elizabeth Holmes, there is a documentary. I'm not sure who it's on, uh, what what channel it's on, but there is a documentary on Elizabeth, uh, a drama on the rise of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And there are so many good lessons in that from um, an investment perspective around the issues of a charismatic CEO and the downfall of a business that is built around not just a charismatic CEO, but her, her partner at the time as well, who was also equally charismatic and a, a bit of a bully and a narcissist. Um, well worth watching. I forget the name of it, but it, I think it's on either Disney or Peacock. But I will post a little note in the on the notes to the podcast and we'll, we'll be a, there'll be a link in there if you want to watch it. Okay, well, thanks, Graham. I hope my desk hasn't wobbled too much. Um get your mum to give me a double check on that. and Nick, say hello <laughs> to the filing cabinet for us. Thanks oh, for uh, thanks, thanks for you. being with us and um speak to you soon. Thanks a lot, everybody.